0: On this week's episode of the Ending Center Podcast, we sit down with the alien actor himself, Mr. Bill Blair. But before we get into that, a word from our sponsors. All right, episode number 34. I am here. Man, this actor has an impressive career going back 30 plus years. He is currently the Guinness World Record holder for the most special effect makeup characters portrayed in a career at 202. He is also a 2019 recipient for a Living Legend Award and a Lifetime Achievement Award. This man has lived many lives in this single life. He's been part of many iconic series and films such as Star Trek, Babylon 5, Argo, The Artist, Robocop, Westworld, the list goes on and on. I am here with the alien actor himself, Mr. Bill Blair. How are you doing, brother?
1: Hello. It's a great day to be alive.
0: How have you been able to manage to live such a satisfying career?
1: Hmm. I, I'm not exactly sure uh, how you mean that as far as satisfying career. I mean, it's just, you know, there's different aspects to that. Mm-hmm. The fact that I'm not a marquee name. Okay. you don't see my name at the top of the show. You don't see my name on the marquee outside or on a, on a theater card for a movie. Um, I'm really more part of a supporting cast or, support, mm-hmm. uh, crew, uh, sometimes even behind the scenes, not on camera. And when I am on camera, a lot of my career, yes. Uh, from the aliens, the monsters, the creatures, and, other various special effect characters uh, my face has obviously been hidden a lot so I'm not really recognizable so from that satisfying point uh, for however well you think I am known however many people know me the number of fans I've got uh, recognizable in public probably not so much so I don't have the paparazzi I don't have people coming up and uh wanting to get a chance to say hi you know we've watched this and we watched that and uh, you know what some of the other major stars that you know have to wonder every time they leave their house how long is it going to take them to do an average errand or something because they're going to get stopped along the way for something true so but there's a satisfaction in it's a certain way of that
0: so i mean isn't it a good thing that you're not like the the main attraction, where everybody's trying to get pictures of you, your life is hounded. Don't you find it like uh, satisfying to go in, do your job, and not having to worry about um, the exit route or your 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 escape routine?
1: Yeah, there there is a certain satisfaction in that, and along the same lines that I've been able to, you know, support myself and you know achieve and uh, have a comfortable existence and living. However, there was one time, and this is a fun story I've always enjoyed telling. Uh, my brother and I were visiting Walt Disney World
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: a number of years ago. Uh, it was during the last, well, I'd say it was probably during the last season or so of Babylon 5, that long ago. And we got in line at It's a Small World, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, or, Is it Small World or The Lion King? No, it was A Small World. And, you know, the lines sometimes are really long and we're just wandering along. And all of a sudden, one of the cast members who was in charge of the line outside walked up to me and started talking about what I had done, the scene he actually saw me in as a Minbari telepath and everything else. And that's all it took Everybody else in line now got the idea that there was some sort of celebrity in the park and in line with them. Mm. And right behind my brother and I, there was this big group, probably 19 or 20 young ladies, apparently from a church group, who just went gaga, is the (laughs) old term. And every one of them had a camera and every one of them wanted a picture with me. It was a different experience for me at the time. Something like that had never really happened to me. And my brother learned very quickly what it was like to become a one-man entourage, playing photographer, yet still keeping the line moving. And this poor little cast member who got all of this started cowering in in the corner, just trying to blend back in somewhere, knowing that he probably had violated one of the top rules of Disney in that if you see somebody you think you recognize from the entertainment industry, do not approach them. Do not talk to them. You do not want to create a crowd scene. He was, he was very, very, uh, apologetic after it was all over. After the ride, um, he came up to my brother. Actually, he was now afraid to come up to me again. He came up to my brother and apologized Instead basically said, now I know why they tell us don't approach somebody. <laughs> and uh, he was, and my brother said, don't worry, he he's okay with this. And we're, nobody's gonna tell anybody anything. Your, your, your job is safe, kind of <laughs> attitude. Um, and then he finally came up to me and, said, and apologized, at which point I gave him an autograph just on whatever was handy, and he was just ecstatic. But it was it was quite the experience, and my first time of actually, this was be- before I started doing the sci-fi conventions and everything.
2: Wow! That somebody
1: actually could recognize me out of a crowd was such a fan of a show. Now there's one little, I uh, call it twist to this story that probably gave him a clue. My brother and I actually like to publicize, advertise, market, whatever you want to call it, for the shows that I was on. Hmm. So it didn't probably help any matters that he and I were both wearing Babylon 5 hats and or jackets. (laughs) And he put two and two together.
0: Oh, wow. So did that attention um, go after the ride? Like you guys went to another attraction and, you know, the, the mumbling just started following you?
1: No, um, we passed a few of those girls that were in line behind us at other points in the park. And other than just smiling at us and trying to take another picture or two of my brother and I together from a distance, they were very respectful.
0: Oh, that's good. Well, because they they already got the picture they wanted.
1: Yeah, I actually did uh, give them a little bit of a hint. Um, When we got down to the ride, those girls actually asked me if I wouldn't ride in the same gondola boat with them at which point I said no we're being assigned to this one up here but I'll turn around and wave to you and um so yeah it, they were those girls like I said they were, you know considering what had happened they were being very respectful and no um we were able to go throughout the rest of the park on our on our day, day and evening without any interruptions. Although there was one other part when we went over to what was them NGM Studios now called Hollywood Studios um, at Walt Disney World, we went to the uh, rock and roller coaster attraction, and apparently one of the cast members there also did recognize me. And when we got uh, when we finished our first ride around. And we were getting to the point where you finish the ride and get out to exit. He just asked us if we'd like to go around again.
0: <laughs> well, at least he was a little bit incognito rather than the other
1: the other uh uh team yeah.
0: lead or whoever was in charge of the ride.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He was he was just a fan. He said, I love the show. He says, Yeah, I'm gonna go again. Just stay put. And so we wrote, boy, but you should have seen the layers and the stares we got from other people waiting in line to go on the ride that realized they had to wait for another turn. <laughs> because my brother and I already had a car occupied.
0: That, we that comes with the status. I wonder,
1: who are these people? What do they get to do this for? <laughs> but, so every once in a while, it's nice to get the little perks here and there. But yeah, you know, going back to your original question, it's, it's been very satisfying that for the most part, You know, I'm left alone, and uh, I'm not hounded by a lot of people. Although I do enjoy it when I do the conventions uh, and I make my personal appearances, it is really enjoyable to spend the time with the fans, have them come up and talk to me, um, take pictures, whatever you know was going on at the event, uh, doing the Q and As, talking about the career a little bit, like what we're going to be doing here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I just. The fans are everything to me if if it wasn't for the people watching the shows that i have been on i wouldn't have had the career that i have had you know because if people don't watch the show doesn't stay on and then you're out like everybody else looking for a new job
0: the attention that you get from the convention versus on the street is it more respectful
1: well on the street like at, at disney and other places uh, people are actually a little bit more shy in some ways. Mm. Um, should I go up and talk to them? I think I recognize them. Uh, do I ask them? You know, and others that actually, you know, on a rare occasion, if I'm out and about, uh will just walk by and say, "I really love what I, I saw you on," whatever they wanted to talk about. It would be over and done with in you know less than thirty or sixty seconds. Mm. What's different at the conventions for me? is because I am there, I'm, I am part of the attraction of the convention, is that people know that I'm there to talk to them and to entertain them. And so they will come up, and you get a real wide variety of, of people and attitudes from just wanting to walk up, say hi, it's nice to see, oh, what a great collection of photos you have out here and everything. And, and they may stand there for two or three minutes then I've got those that are just so enamored or think they have a life story of their own to talk about. They will stand there at my table or catch me in the hallway or something and want to talk for 20 or 30 minutes. It eventually gets a little bit tiring to talk because I know there's other people that are staying around hoping to have a chance to talk to me and, um, and spend time with me when somebody else is monopolizing the whole situation and I don't always have an assistant nearby. So there's nobody to distract that person and, and move them on.
0: So how do you, how do you react to that? Do you um, feed into it? Do you continue with the conversation or at certain, at some point do you just excuse yourself?
1: A lot of times. uh, Well, if I'm at my table, it's not really easy to excuse myself. Um, But I, you know, like anybody should be I'm polite and I'm cordial they're there you know they've come to the convention for one or more reasons and maybe I'm one of them and I want to give them all the time that they want um if I do see somebody else you know trying to get some time with me I will just politely say hang on just a moment and I'll go say hi I'll I'll actually because their back will be to somebody else and Thanks. I see somebody trying to catch my eye I catch their eye, I you know, just glance at the person talk to me, and I'll just say, Hey, hi, come on in, there's room for more. And then actually sometimes these people get the hint or they realize, Wow, I've been monopolizing this whole thing and they'll actually step to the side and they'll actually become part. And instead of me having a conversation with one person, I'll be now talking with maybe two, three, five people all at the same time and everybody's Having a group conversation and sharing stories along with me about my life and what they've liked or uh, their other interests. Mm. so there's there's lots of ways around that without hurting someone's feelings or making them feel like you know you know you don't want to talk to them anymore.
0: Oh yeah, because then they um, they stick with that, right? Because sometimes a fan meets a celebrity and you know the celebrity doesn't give. Uh, you know, a good first impression, and then they carry on with the rest of their lives with that in in mind. So, and then they just pass that along, saying, uh, "You know, Bill Blair, he he's a he's an a hole. You know, don't don't interact with him. He's not the greatest guy."
1: You know, I go back to my original premise that I said. You know, without the fans, without the people watching mm. the shows, I wouldn't be where I'm at. So I'm so grateful for everybody that watches the shows who have become my fans. Um. They're why I am who I am, and I owe them as much time as I ever can. It's not that they owe me, I owe them.
0: Mm, That's a good way to look at it. Acting wasn't in the cards that you were dealt. You actually went to Kent State University uh, studying telecommunications. What happened that changed your, your mind?
1: Let me back you up one step from that. Go ahead. It actually didn't start with telecommunications. When I first started in college, I actually went as an electronic engineering major. But as it was in the time of my life, certain classes were only offered in that major on a Saturday. And I just did not want to go to school on Saturdays. So I kind of thought about things and what direction I was going in. At that time I was still interested. I was still and continuing my interest in music and performing. Mm. So I thought, Theater, stage, I didn't have a real good experience with that in high school. Um, and so, broadcasting, TV and film, you know, and somebody I knew, a professor on campus, his son was a good friend of mine, and we talked, and so I decided to switch over to what was then called telecommunications, which in a lot of areas and schools now has become a radio, TV, and film major. mm I was actually part of the School of Speech, even though the major was telecommunications.
0: Okay, and at what point did you uh, decide to make the big move into a film?
1: Well, there's an interesting, long story. I will try to give you the Reader's Digest version. It's on my website, by the way. There's part of the story there under my um, biography. Mm-hmm. But while I was in college, I, I went all the way through. I actually never did any of the college theater plays or anything like that, but I was in all the way through college and even shortly after college, I was still performing, doing live music in you know, four- and five-piece bands. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I went even down at one point to a trio um, and as high as a seven-piece band, and that all lasted from the late 70s through the early 80s. Uh, But it was in 1982 when my music career basically came to an end. And I had to make a change in my life's direction. But I still wanted to be in performing arts. So it was suggested to me that maybe I should, you know, I've got a good build and good personality, as I was told, that maybe modeling, photography modeling might be something I could consider so the closest place to where I was living in Ohio that was a major market without going to New York because I really didn't want to get lost in the Big Apple was Chicago so I spent a couple of years in Chicago and while I was there I began teaching as one of my uh, supporting incomes I started teaching uh, modeling and uh some acting believe it or not for commercials and stuff as i got my feet wet and while i doing that i was asked if i would be in a movie called the killing floor uh just as an extra which we now call the background actor um could help out a friend's daughter who was doing casting for that movie and um i said sure it sounds like fun i mean this was in the early 80s, and it was going to pay all of $25 for the day. Uh, but I was okay with that, and I thought I might learn something. And while I was there, um, paying attention, I mean, here I am only knowing some theater and stuff, and I heard somebody up there saying, okay, this is a rehearsal. And all I could think to myself was, why are they just rehearsing today? Don't you do that before you show up and then actually do the show? Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like I didn't know the difference between stage and film at the time. Uh, So I was learning and I was watching. I was not hanging out with the big crowds of the extras there at the time. I was watching this person who would call rehearse and who was operating the camera. And at one point I saw this, what I learned was the assistant director go to one of the people in charge of us and say, we need someone to play a security guard that we haven't seen yet. So I just was within earshot, I made eye contact, which I love doing with people, held up my hand and said, can I help you with that? And they said, where have you been in this? I said, clear at the back of the crowd, <laughs> way in the back, I, you know, I need binoculars to see the camera. And uh, they said, okay, great, go to wardrobe. And they took me over to wardrobe, they made me a security guard, they take me up, place me up in the scene, in front of this crowd now that I was at the back of, I'm now up in front of them, standing on this loading dock of this structure. And I'm learning right then and there. They're telling, I'm learning what a mark is, uh, what's happening. The camera's actually behind me at the beginning, and one's off to the side. And we shoot this scene, and I have a simple action of handing, taking a piece of paper from the two main actors, handing it back to them and pointing them to the back of the line. And we did that. And I thought we were all done. and I said, okay. And then they said something to me again, that was very, very different. They said, do you mind standing in for yourself? Mm. And I said, okay, what do I do? I literally was green green at this. I had no idea. And they said, well, just stand here where you've been, stay on your mark while we turn around and set the camera. Uh, you've heard that old cliche, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille?
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: The very first movie I was on, this was it, called The Killing Floor. It was directed by a very, now very famous, was, I learned his directorial debut. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Bill Duke mm. was directing this. And next thing I know, they're turning the camera around, and I am the only thing on camera. They literally are doing a close-up of me taking this paper from these two gentlemen, handing it back to them, and pointing to the back of the line.
0: And that was just to, like, do a favor. Like, you weren't even planning to do it. You were just asked to do it. It's not something that you actively sought out. So, at this no, point... No,
1: I, I had not registered with anybody like you do these days for casting offices. Um, as far as, you know, this was just a gentleman whose daughter was doing this and they approached me and just said, hey, she needs bodies for this day. Would you mind helping out? Wow. That's how it happened. Wow. Now, there's also one other one other really good name that was in this movie. He's passed away since then, but you might recognize him, his name from Law & Order, uh, the name of Dennis Farina.
0: Oh, really?
1: He was in this movie. I was actually in three different projects with him Uh, In Chicago and another one or two even out here in LA and Las Vegas later on He was originally a Chicago police officer before his acting career took off.
0: You're you're best known for Being the alien actor. What was the first experience like? uh, being applied makeup to
1: Well the first official special effect makeup character that I did, I actually did on myself. I was in Dallas, Texas at the time. And I was asked to perform in a live stage show for Oracle software company. Mm. This was uh, again in the eighties and they were introducing their networking software to the tech community. And this entire convention that had come together we were part of a stage show and they did a sci-fi theme. Mm -hmm. And on the stage right wing, they had uh, two astronauts and a cosmonaut in a little scenario. To stage left on the wing was three characters from Star Wars. And center stage, they were focusing on Star Trek. And we had a Captain Kirk, a Lieutenant Uhura, and myself, as Commander Spock. Mm. And unfortunately, and I already had, I, with my costuming background and some other things from Halloween and, you know, what stage I, in uh, entertainment performing arts I had done. And knowing Star Trek,
2: <clears throat>
1: excuse me, they came up with this costume that you just get at your local costume shop, which was the blue shirt and these elf ears that you're just supposed to slip over your ears and put a little spirit gum on so they don't fall off. And that was it. No, that was not good enough for me. Um, I was only a couple of blocks away from uh, a costume and makeup shop. And I thought I've got an hour before showtime. That's all I was. That's when I first saw the costume. So I ran up to the store. I got some nose and scar putty and a little bit of white fibrous material and a bottle of spirit gum. And I came back and in the next half hour or so, I literally sculpted Vulcan ears onto the tops of my ears so that they were totally formed. I painted them, uh, tried to make sure I couldn't see any edges. I shaped my eyebrows the best I could with pencil and, um, uh, And went on. And that was it. And it was interesting because at the end of the the sketch that we were doing, we were supposed to go out into the audience chanting this new slogan for Oracle Software. Mm -hmm. And people literally were reaching up and touching my ears. (laughs) And had (laughs) I used those fake elf ears that came with the costume, it would have been, oh, this is so phony. I actually had people believing that I had really pointed Vulcan ears.
0: That's funny. So they had to reach out and touch them to make sure they weren't real?
1: Yeah. Well, that's that even when they touched them, they had to question whether or not they were my real ears or not.
0: That is great. That was your first experience. That's that's pretty awesome. And
1: that was my first experience in public, other than you know what little Halloween stuff we do from year to year, that... Uh, we do ghosts and goblins and whatever else that I actually professionally did a special effect character, this one on my own. The next actual experience of special effect characters did not come until I was on Demolition Man where I was being squibbed to be shot and that's when I met the makeup artist who was working on Alien Nation and Star Trek from time to time and um, after working with him as a teaching subject, I got a call from casting to go work in, on Alien Nation. And then it was just literally word of mouth after that the makeup community, you know, sharing notes, you know, and he talked about me and uh, other people, you know, in wardrobe and costume talked to each other. So the next thing I, in casting office that knew I had been on Alien Nation, one of them got word, you know, they make their lists up of people that do certain things. And then I got a call to go to Babylon five. Eventually I interviewed half a dozen times for next generation, uh, for characters, but never got picked. So one night apparently, um, as it worked out, somebody wasn't going to be able to show up the next morning for deep space nine as a Klingon. So the casting director, casting associate at one of the agencies I'd been working with, um, just said, you're the perfect size, I'm just going to send, I'm not even going to call an ass, so I'm just going to send you, it's late, it's like 10, 10.30 at night when this happened. He says, I'm just going to send you in and let them see what you can do. And the old, again, another old cliche, the rest is history.
0: What, what was it about you? Because you're saying uh, these makeup artists, they get together, they share notes, and your name is word of mouth. What was it? A, what was it about you? Was it your, your facial features? Was it? Was it your skin? Because I remember you saying something about your skin reacts well with all latex.
1: Yes, um, the a couple of the major factors, and this is when the makeup artist Richard Snell, uh, when we met on Demolition Man, he was looking. He selected me because he checked out my bone structure. He liked my skin texture. Uh, the shape of my face I mean there was just about three or four different aspects going on and I convinced them that yes I do know how to sit still <laughs> because the best thing and I, I talk about this at my uh, question and answer sessions uh, for conventions one of the one part of an actor's job when you're doing special effects you're dealing with makeup artists Okay, and I stress the word artist in this. Mm. Think about it. A regular artist who works with a canvas on an easel. Does that canvas move any time that that artist is working on it?
0: Okay, I'm I'm following. Okay.
1: Okay. So, but as a human, we tend to have little twitches. We look around, we see something catches our attention. We look over to talk to somebody or whatever. As a good Artist canvas, which is what my face is and my body, depending on what part they're working on, that should not move for them. So they can continue to concentrate and focus on what area. If they're working on my cheek, I don't want to put that cheek in a different position, which could change the lighting on it even. Mm. So, my, one of my major jobs when I'm in that makeup chair is not moving. Hold still, of which I comically say, you know, they say, How'd you learn to do that? I said, Well, I basically did learn how to do that when I was a child, and would sit in front of the TV watching cartoons for hours on end on Saturday morning.
0: Yeah, you turned move. into a, you turned into a zombie over cereal.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it it really became. I mean, I would work. I worked with Richard as a teaching subject for probably two or three weeks, uh, two or three times a week, and uh, it was there he learned also that yeah, this guy is what he said he is. He he doesn't move. He can sit still. He doesn't say, oh, I can't handle this anymore. i got to get up and move around. Um, I could sit in that makeup chair you know, for two or three hours if necessary, if that's how long it takes them to do something on me. Now, fortunately, I have more stamina than a lot of makeup artists because they need to take a break and go out and smoke or do something and get a drink, get some coffee, whatever they want to do. So I'm sitting there waiting for him to come back with me while I get to stretch my legs too. But my job is, as long as the makeup artist is working on me, I need to be there sitting still, standing still, whatever they need to do to work on me. When I first started on Babylon 5, I went in only doing what they call the pullover masks, which means I just pull something over my head and they, you know, uh, stitch it together, glue it together, whatever, in the back, if it needs that even. And um, when they saw how well I could handle that two or three episodes down the road, They said, okay, we're gonna see how well you do, we're gonna glue stuff on you. You okay with that? I said, piece of cake. And from that again, from that point on, I was glued into most everything that I did, with rare exceptions that I would have, you know, the time where I'd only have to use the pullover mask. Mm. And that was in some cases it was easier, but you know what, wearing those pullover masks can be hotter than actually wearing the prosthetic and having it glued on to your face.
0: So speaking about that, has there ever been um, a role that you could think of that you were just like, oh my God, I'm sweating buckets under here. Let's hurry up.
1: Oh, there's no question as far as that goes, it would be playing the Borg on uh, a form of Star Trek. How long? I was not actually in Next Generation. I never played the Borg in an actual Star Trek series. However, there was an attraction that was called Borg Invasion 4D that actually... Debuted, I believe over in Europe and then came and was a resident attraction at the old Las Vegas Hilton here in Las Vegas at the star Trek experience. And while filming that, yes, I mean, there is not, there has been nothing really hotter and more sweaty than being in a Borg outfit because that thing is skin tight, rubber vinyl synthetic materials, you know, out the wazoo and, um, after being in that costume for six hours from the time that you get into it till you break for lunch, I'm literally standing in a puddle of my own sweat down by my feet.
0: My jaw is literally on the floor. How do you do that for six hours? Like, that sounds exhausting. Like, I'm surprised you didn't pass out. How do you do that?
1: Well, it it is. Again, it's a matter of patience, understanding. It's, I guess there's another old phrase. You know, if it was easy, anybody could do it. It's not easy, it it takes a special personality, it takes patience. Um, There's a reason also why, if you look at all the episodes with Borg in them, you won't really find too many Borg, if any, that are overweight. Um, These are stylized outfits. Um, If somebody was overweight, there's a chance that they would sweat that much harder in these outfits. Wow. Um, But they were stylized based on the alien race itself, which um, was to be people that were slender, uh, robotic in nature. Um, So there was really no discrimination there. It was just a a side effect, if you could uh, allow that phrase, in the sense that it just really wouldn't be something good uh, for somebody who, you know, carries a little excess weight on Mm -hmm. their own bodies because... I'll tell you, you get zipped into this thing, top to bottom. Have you ever worn a wetsuit for surfing or anything like that? To get into a Borg outfit, you actually are putting on a latex bodysuit first. And then you are powdered down so that this Borg costume can actually slide onto your body and be zipped up. If you think that's torture... One of the days we were shooting on this project, they had a thermometer. They were they were they were all keeping very good. Whenever there's Borg on set, they keep a very good close watch on everybody. It's safety, number one in our industry. Safety is number one. Human factor, a close second. Um, lots of water around, uh, keeping hydrated. In between shots, fans are available. You know. But on these days where we were shooting, we were working with steam. We were working with liquid nitrogen. We were working with hot lights. I mean, you name it. The thermometer on the stage floor read 105 degrees. You could, you could easily lose a few to several pounds of water weight just over a day or two years ago. And I, and again, we're talking about experience and it was known from the late eighties. I was one of the very first costume characters for Frito-Lay, known as Chester Cheetah. And this had a huge head and a nylon uh, bodysuit covered in fake fur to create Chester Cheetah, the character you see on the Cheetos um, commercials. Brand Puffs. Mm -hmm. And we were doing a dog and pony show around the southeastern portion of the United States that food shows in grocery stores and what have you, promoting the new character for Cheetos. Mm. In two weeks, with that costume, indoors and outdoors, in two weeks, I lost 12 pounds of water weight. And I have to actually say, in, at that point in time, <clears throat> this is rather interesting to admit, but I actually did something to get myself fired from that job because that company was not taking care of me.
0: Really? So, uh, what, what did you do to get fired? Like, did you? Is is that something that you could talk about?
1: Well, at one of the, at one of these uh, appearances that they had Chester at, it was in our contract that we could not appear at the same event as Coca Cola, because at that point, Frito Lay was owned by Pepsi. Mm-hmm. And so, the local area down there decided, you know, there was this store. That was having a huge, just big attraction that day. And they had several costume characters, several different brands of products being displayed that day and promoted at this location. And the local Frito Lay people knew full well that Coca Cola was going to be there. And we told them we're not supposed to show up at this. We have it in our contract. We are not to cross-promote with a competitor. Mm. But the local free lay people said, but it's done where we have to show up. We have to be there.
0: Regardless. And I didn't
1: understand that. Uh-huh. They said, "Just uh, you know, they just said, well, just stay away from them, go to another part of the location. I said, well, I don't know about that. So, as it turned out, Coca-Cola had their big motorized miniature 18-wheeler there. So, as humorous as this may sound, Chester took a ride on the 18-wheeler of Coca-Cola. My assistant took a Polaroid of it and we sent it back to the marketing firm. 48 hours later, we were fired. If I had quit, I'd just been out of a job. The fact that I got them to fire me, I was eligible for unemployment.
0: You played it smart. You played it. Balahi Bodejo, who played the alien in the original film Alien, he had to enroll and learn Tai Chi to learn how to move gracefully and viciously uh, as it asked for the movie. Uh, When you play Mm -hmm. these aliens, um, what's the best advice given by a fellow alien actor?
1: Um, I don't know that I I actually got advice from a fellow actor, um, I would get direction. Sometimes, for example, even on, on Deep Space Nine, as a Jim Hadar, we would get little bits of information or direction from Michael Westmore, the makeup uh, supervisor and designer. Oh, wow. That would remind us that, hey, as a Jem'Hadar, you're not robots. Move, you can turn your neck, you can move around, You know, you're stiff, but you can still be animated. Uh, Whereas like with the Borg, uh, producers, uh, assistant directors, would be advising us, you know, as far as, you know, somewhat robotic moves, but still organic. No, it was really just practice. Unlike, you take the movie with Mark Wahlberg, Planet of the Apes. Mm -hmm. Um, that I interviewed for, and actually, Tim Burton and uh, Rick Baker and the whole crew, producers actually selected me, but casting actually never sent me to the show for some reason. But I learned uh, through my contacts and my friends that had I been selected, we knew this going in, that actually everybody had to go to quote-unquote ape school, and they would actually have people there that would work with you in learning how to animate and move as if you were, you know, a primordial ape, you know, with the long arms as an orangutan or, you know, the um somewhat shorter legs of a gorilla, things like that. They would actually they have people that would train people for that. But in all of my experiences, whether it was Babylon five, um, even when I played Frankenstein's monster for a project, um, I did my own research and looking at old Frankenstein movies and things um, to learn the body language and the mannerisms uh, of that character. Uh, most everything I ever did was my own self research, even uh, when I portrayed um, Stan Laurel in a mm. project and I auditioned for it. I just watched two or three old Laurel and Hardy uh, movies from way, way back, and I would just practice, and practice, and practice his mannerisms, um, and I would win the audition. Um, So sometimes, no, you don't actually have uh, other actors or uh, people telling you exactly how to do this or demonstrate it to you. Um, I I was literally on my own most of the time.
0: Oh, wow. So out of all the characters you've played, which was the most challenging and why?
1: Well, from a stamina point, it would have been the Borg Mm. without a question. Um, Challenging in terms of the actual character itself um, was, and probably my, and it also was my most enjoyable and my most iconic was Frankenstein's monster. And the reason for that is, again, I I really did my research to learn the body language. I was going to be in boots. I was going to be, you know, half again as big as I am uh, in height and breadth. But in addition to that, I wanted to do a really good job because our stylist came from Universal Studios. And I actually got to wear Fred Gwynn's original costume from The Munsters
0: wow you you wore history you wore a part of history how was that feeling
1: yes it's an amazing feeling to think that you know here is something that was at this point 30 years in the past and i'm getting to put this on that came from you know the vault it's you know not something that would just be out there this is not a costume that just came from a costume shop this was an original item worn by an very famous celebrity actor from a iconic black and white t v show that that meant i I owed this something, this so it was not just putting on something and just going through the motions. I owed this a quality performance more than anything else
0: so did that add pressure to the performance?
1: No, not pressure, just a desire to do to do a really good job you know. Not that I don't always, you know, as an actor, we always have, you know, well, even in life, everybody that does a job wants to hopefully do the best that they can at that. The only thing that came to this for me was, uh, in the sense, not nervousness, but that this deserves something special. Mm -hmm. That when I can tell this story down the road, people can look at it and say maybe, yeah, I saw a little Herman Munster in that. But there's another one on Star Trek that was always very physically challenging to me in, in a smaller way. We had one of these pullover heads that we nicknamed the Greenhorn, And I was one of only two people that I actually could wear that. And even then, because it was so tight on my head, that, and there was no nose for this. I mean, my nose was covered With the prosthetic, that at the end of the day, it rubbed me so hard from being so tight. I would look like WC Fields with the big red nose at the end of the day, like Rudolph, the red nosed reindeer. (laughs) There was so much irritation. I don't want to be thinking about the pain, you know, when I'm supposed to be creating a character that's just, you know, nonchalant or has some other purpose in the scene. Mm. Uh, But on the other hand, a little bit of pain, you know, might change my body language that gives the character a little bit, you know, uniqueness to it. The fact is, think about this. You know what the game of charades is, right? Yeah. You have to create, you have to uh, emote something from somebody to uh, transmit a message without using your voice. Mm-hmm. So just imagine the fact that I'm playing charades anywhere from eight to 12, 14 hours a day when I'm in costume. I have to create the character and the image. I have to uh, transmit through my body language what is going on in the scene. Am I in quarks having a good time? Am I walking just from one point A to point B? You know, am I what job am I on? Where am I going, am I going shopping? Am I going to a business meeting? In um, uh, in Deep Space Nine as a Jem'Hadar, we had the scene where we're all learning a form. The Jem'Hadar being trained in martial arts. and I'm actually playing the Sensei, and I have to make sure that I'm teaching that I like I belong as the leader of this pack of Jem'Hadar. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm dead, how do you how do you actually show dead? Is it just laying there still without moving? Or do you have to actually focus on the fact that you have absolutely no muscle control? Everything is atrophied in your body. Your eyes are closed. Your eyelids cannot move. There are a lot of things. Everything is about body language, whether you're motionless or you're in motion, and what is your character about?
0: And that's something that you you kind of self-taught yourself, right? You didn't go through a course for that?
1: No. I mean, i sure. I I mean, in anything, you know, you need to take some sort of training. You take training going through grade school through high school Mm -hmm. of different things as, as you learn and decide what you want to do with your life. We all have training. And this is why in method acting, you know, you're taught to reflect back on your life and, and pull things from your life that help you create a character on stage or in film, whatever you're doing. Uh, so we have life itself as a training ground. And so we reflect on that. Am I a method actor? No, I don't think of it myself as that I think of myself as an actor in the moment. And, uh, I have to think about, okay, what is this character? Who is he? Where did he come from? Where is he going i'm 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 writing my own story in my head about this person, and a lot of times I get to make that up as an alien. I mean there is no reference for them if I'm not a Klingon, if I'm not a a jemadar, if I'm not a minbari, if I'm not a Narn, if I'm not Frankenstein's monster, if I'm some generic alien creature that is only seen once. And then it's forever gone. I have the creative freedom now to make up in my head whatever this creature is. But if I don't do that, then I look like just a bunch of clothes with latex foam plastered all over my body.
0: That was just, that was one of my questions because uh, Andy Serkis he plays uh, Caesar in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. He had to Mm -hmm. go to ape school, like you said, where... I mean, it sounds weird. You know, the the concept of an ape school just sounds so childish. But for for these movies like Rampage uh, with with The Rock, and you have uh, Jason Lyles where he plays George, you have to go to school, you have to study. But being you as an alien actor, you don't have a reference point. There is no source for you to pull from. So I think that's really interesting that you're just creating a backstory and creating these mannerisms for an alien that doesn't really exist.
1: I was on the set of Babylon five one day and we were shooting this scene. Now I've been on Babylon five for a couple of seasons by now. And the director and I knew each other fairly well from all the episodes he had directed and very friendly. And it was one of the garden scenes and so this other female actor and I were just placed on this park bench as if we were just having regular conversation. They were just going to kind of start out on us and then pan over to the principal actors. Um, and I don't remember if it was Delenn and uh, Malari or what it was going on as they were having a conversation in the garden area. But they wanted to start out on us and finish on us. Mm-hmm. And at one point, the director just said, "Kiss her." <laughs> well, under any normal circumstances, if the director had said prior to the shot or taking anything, are you too okay with kissing? Because I respect my fellow actor, and in some ways, it's like, you know we I didn't know this this actor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We had never worked together before. Um, so immediately in my head, I thought to myself, I'm an alien. Have we ever seen this race kiss before?
0: Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm.
1: So when he said kiss her, I thought the quickest thing I could do was I just pulled in close and had us rub cheeks. Literally rub cheeks as if lips were together. In my head, it was lip to lip, but instead of lip to lip, I made it a very intimate cheek to cheek.
0: That that's a interesting uh twist. Uh, and you just came up with that on the fly? Yes. Oh wow, that's that's pretty I creative.
1: Had, I literally to me I had I had literally a blink of an eye to think of something so that it would seem natural and uh, fluid and what term we use sometimes organic within the scene that I was just told to do.
0: Oh <laughs> wow. That's pretty cool. So, I have a question from um uh, a, a fan and a, a previous guest his name is Jose Gladio he, uh, he's a special effects artist at Funhouse Mass Studios his question for you is he's he's seen your work and he knows that you were on RoboCop he wants to know if you have any insight on the process Peter Weller had to go through to get in the RoboCop uh, Robo, ah, RoboCop suit I'm sorry suit
1: okay the only information I have on that that was one of my very first movies I was in when I moved to Dallas and I played an undercover cop in the station. But we were all sat down, and we were told, because this was going to be the first day that Peter was going to be in the RoboCop outfit. And it was, and Peter is very much a method actor. So once he got into the costume, I mean, he was RoboCop. He became RoboCop, you know, and we, everybody on the crew, unless you were a director or uh you know, obviously somebody that was involved specifically in his character in the scene, nobody talked to him. Really? He was very isolated inside the costume. I know he probably felt very isolated, but he was also very focused on his body language. I mean, he had to walk a certain way. Now, the the costume itself really lent itself to his body language. I mean, it was jointed, Mm -hmm. um, hinged, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, his arm motions, everything. That was Peter being Robocop. I mean, that was being that character, the way it moved, the way the head turned. He was, oh, it was just amazing to me at my young career age in this to watch him perform. Um, and the one of the scenes specifically where I got to see this over and over and over again is the scene where he walks into the uh, police station in front of the sergeant's desk and they toss the keys to him and he grabs them out of midair. Mm. We did that multiple takes. It just wasn't working. He would miss it. Uh, The the throw wouldn't get far enough to him. The the position of the catch was wrong. And oddly enough, the director said, okay, we're going to do this one more time. Make it or break it. If we don't get it, we don't get it. And on that particular one, for whatever reason, magic happened. The the toss was perfect. The catch was perfect. The exit was perfect. He, you know, because the whole thing was walk in, grab and go. There was it had to be one fluid motion, and it just worked finally on that last tape. And it happened he to be that This is it, or are we, are we move on. And I got to witness all of this, and it was it was very very interesting to watch his mannerisms, um, the way he made that RoboCop outfit work for him. And here's another little interesting piece of trivia. That I learned that day back then, this was 19. I'm going to say this was, I think, 1985 or 86 when we were shooting this. I can't remember the exact year, but it was mid 80s. That costume back then cost $65,000 to fabricate man hours, everything else. I mean, just think, I mean, think about that and put it in perspective. The size of that costume, the electronics, as I said, the whole fabrication, the man hours, and everything going into designing and everything else. The average prosthetic that we would use on Star Trek, the man hours, the design time, and the materials to create, say, the Gemitar head or the Klingon forehead, face pieces of thing, average cost would. The initial run is two thousand dollars. You don't paint a picture overnight and have it be a masterpiece, unless you just get lucky. Mm. I mean, there are people that talk about, I, you know, Stevie Wonder, for example, wrote his one song literally on the same day and within hours of his baby being born. You know, it was a stroke of genius. You know, not all of his songs were ever written in a matter of moments. Um, you know, great. Movies were, uh, I was just reading the other day, Forrest Gump, based on the book, took years before it was turned into the screenplay that we saw on, on the, on the movie screens. Um, I was in a movie called Sneakers in the early nineties. It was nine years in the making. There are things that just, they take time and whatever that time involves is money. In the movie Argo, where I played the Argo robot. Mm. Those blue eyes that I had were all little blue LEDs in the eyes. I had a little power pack inside that helmet that was powering that. Oh, really? Yeah, those were not CGI eyes. Those were practical LEDs mounted inside the helmet.
2: Mm. How
0: how was that experience like, wearing it, like being on set with uh, Ben Affleck?
1: Um, I one of my more enjoyable experiences overall, it was two days of work. Um, Great time. Ben was wonderful to work with the whole production company. I worked with these folks one other time or two, Uh, the assistant director. uh, They all knew. And here's another thing, interesting behind the scenes. People think about actors, always having to go through an audition process until you become a really big name where offers come to you mm-hmm. because they already know that you have the talent, they already know you're a box office straw. The average actor has to audition for the vast majority of everything that they do. Interestingly enough, I got the offer to play the robot because of a person in the wardrobe department of that movie who I had worked with on Star Trek Deep Space Nine.
0: Oh, so at some point it's like um it pays off to know people like it's 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 beneficial networking is is key right it's like it's all about who you know at some point
1: actors can get jobs through multiple avenues of connections whether it's you know actual through casting people that know you the director that is you know doing the project that knows you The writers will write a part for you because they know what you can do and they think that you would be great in this particular character that they want to add. In my case, I've gotten jobs just because the makeup department, people know me and they tell casting and the directors and the producers, I got a job on a TV series called The Invisible Man years ago because the director knew me. And they had a special effect thing they were going to do. And he just told the producers, look, I've got this guy. I know what he can do. And you won't have to do all this other stuff you guys are talking about. You're making it way too difficult. And so I got a call and I said, give me a a few hours or whatever. I'll call you back. I thought it through, figured it out, called him back. And I said, yeah, this will be easy. So I went down. It was shot in one day, the scene. And the producers actually came up to me and thanked me how much money I saved the company that I was known now as his go-to guy when it comes to things uh, and, it, and it worked out well. Uh, there are so many different ways that people can get parts in movies and TV through just reputation and connections and the people you get to know but on Argo, yeah uh, it was it was a lucky uh, thing that I had worked with this gal and she was working on this particular movie. I'd been on many other shows with her since Star Trek uh, because she had recommended me to the assistant directors and the producers for certain things and uh, I had a very interesting experience on Argo for that matter when it came to doing the table read uh, of the fake movie Argo because I had the helmet on and inside, as I mentioned, I had a power pack in there. Mm -hmm. And that power pack had a little fan in it was helping keep me cool. Well, with that fan running in my ear, I couldn't hear the cue line. I couldn't hear the dialogue going on to know when it was my turn to speak. So the long story is, I eventually ended up having to have Adrian Barbeau who was sitting next to me. I'd learned a trick many years ago in Chicago and I just asked her if she would tap me, if she didn't have both hands on the table at the time for the previous take, if she could just leave one hand down, and when it was my turn, based on the script, you know, when it was my turn, just tap me on my thigh, and then I would know to deliver my line. Whether I, No matter what I heard, all I did was wait for her to tap my thigh, and then I delivered my line.
0: Was the fan that loud that it could just completely distort yes. everything outside of it?
1: Yeah. When, well, you got to think. You, if you take a think about one of these little electric fans, portable fans that are battery powered, mm-hmm. and put that about one inch away from your ear, that's a white noise. It blocks out almost everything else that you hear around you.
0: And after the table reading, when it came down to being on set, was that resolved, or you just had to? How How did that happen on set with the with a fan in your ear?
1: Well as I said, the the power pack inside, it was a cooling fan for for the um, uh, power that was running the lights in the eyes. Mm. So, that had to be on the whole time. And that was making that white noise in my ear. We didn't know about this going in. And um, I knew all of a sudden that I couldn't hear anything because my cue line was like three or four characters down the table and it was and with that helmet on and with that fan blowing uh, most things that I could hear normally even were just a whisper so yeah it all worked out and when the scene was over uh, the assistant director and producers came up to me and were chuckling and they said that was absolutely great that was that was we had no idea what it was going to sound like it was perfect thank you and that was it we moved on
0: that's pretty cool. I would have been like a, a deer in the headlights the moment I put that helmet on. Oh, I can't hear anything! I'd, I'd freak out. <laughs> my mouth would be open, well, my eyes would be bulging out. Like, oh my god, what am I doing?
1: And realizing, if you if you go back and check out the movie and listen to the, listen to my dialogue and the volume, I was actually screaming loudly inside that helmet to make sure that my voice carried through the helmet and was picked up by the microphone.
0: You've achieved many milestones and rewards in your career. How would you define success?
1: Each person has to define success in their own way. Some people define it based on the money they have. Some people base it on the, the uh, hierarchy that they've made within a company they work for, uh, the car that they have, the house that they own. Some people like myself, I define success based on my daily life, you know. Um, there are sometimes am I su- as successful as I dreamed of at one time? Oh, I could say it would have been nice to have my name at the top of a show someday where I was actually one of the main stars i came close to that on a star trek fan film where i was listed as a special guest star at the top of the show Mm. but otherwise 90 plus percent of my career probably 95 percent of my career is uncredited on screen you don't see my name Mm. and that's i'm okay with that that does not deter me from what i feel has been a successful life a successful career um And I think I proved that to myself when I finally took up a few people suggesting to me based on how many characters I have played in special effects that I find out and I eventually, yes, I ended up researching and submitting to, at the request of the Guinness World Record people, submitted and they developed, they created this new category just for me because they didn't have anything like it. They had never had a record of Karloff or Lugosi or Ron Chapman or any of these people that played classic Universal Monsters and other creatures in shows. They had no record in their files of over 50,000 files at Guinness World Records. They did not have a category like this. They had Rick Baker and all the special effects that he'd ever done in a record and everything else, but nothing like this. So. They were happy when I asked them if they had anything like this, and they said, no, we've looked at your website. We don't have this. Would you please submit? I'd be happy to. They said, fine, we'll let you know in about six months because this is brand new and we have to get all the legal stuff together and we'll tell you what we need. So it took me a lot longer. It took me four years to compile everything that they eventually asked for to submit. And it was in 2011 that they um, were satisfied and approved the record and uh established it back in may of 2011 i became the world record holder for this category at the time with 202 special effect makeup characters that i had portrayed those are different special effect makeup characters it doesn't count the number of times that i played the same klingon or the same minbari or anything else the multiple days that i played frankenstein's monster these are actual different characters that I have portrayed. And to put that into perspective, it's like a human can be a doctor, a nurse, an office worker, a chef, a cook, a lawyer. They're all different characters of the same human race.
2: Mm. So I
1: played different characters as a Minbari, as a Klingon, as a Jemadar, you know. So sometimes people get a little confused with the record that, no, this is actual different special effect characters. Not just different creatures and aliens.
0: So with you at 202, and I'm sure it's well past that at this point, you're talking about nine years ago, uh, is there anybody even close to touching your record? Because that's impressive.
1: I honestly do not know. I mean, unofficially, very unofficially, there was another young man who'd worked on Babylon 5 and Star Trek for many years, who'd probably done you know well over 100. But he himself even admits <clears throat> that he didn't keep his records. He actually has no way to go back and actually count how many individual ones unless he can actually find copies and develop you know, his own way of proving that he was there and that that's who he was. One of the things I had to do was, not only did I have my work records, all my pay stubs and everything that showed the days that I worked and the characters that I played on that day, But I had to go back and I found video clips of everything that was documented and approved by Guinness World Records, including um, photographic prints of those scenes, encircling them and indicating. And then I had to get at least two. I ended up getting 12 different individuals to sign off on a spreadsheet, Initially, what they had personally witnessed, to know that they were the makeup artist, they were assistant director, they were this or that, wardrobe department. Somebody that actually physically saw me in that character, uh, in that show.
0: Wow. And you did four years of research for that? To to go back a, and four years footage.
1: Four years of research, documentation, organizing, um, I said taking video clips and everything. It it was a lot of man hours. I had two friends that helped me double and triple check all of my work
0: wow but i mean there's not many people that could say that so it's all worth it four years of research to to have this you know a record that i i, I honestly don't think with the way cgi is now and practical effects practical effects is being used less and less now it's just ba- basically zombies and you know vampires but I don't see anybody breaking that record. that is it's mind-boggling. 202 separate characters. I thought it was 202 with reoccurring in there. I didn't know that it was just 202 separate you know one character two characters yeah, individual
1: I, yeah yeah actual actual individual different characters. And so to go back to your question, that to me is one degree of my success mm. that I can say yes, I achieved this had nothing really to do with money or anything else. Other degrees of success are I have been able to live comfortably, not extravagantly. You know, a lot of people have the misconception that, you know, if you're a known name at all in Hollywood, like I kind of am, um, that you have, you know, millions of dollars because they hear about all the A-listers who have multi-millions of dollars and shows making million dollars an episode in sitcoms. No, that's a very, very small percentage of those in the industry. Most of us, you know, don't make, I know actors still to this day that have leading roles that go years between leading roles, have families. They live in modest homes, uh, are considered at best middle income families. Mm -hmm. It's just, but they have the success because they have a family. They have a comfortable life. Um, And they're doing what they enjoy. And that really is, in some ways, the best definition of success to me, that you enjoy where you're at. If you want a family, if you have a family that you love and adore and look forward to going home to, that alone can be success in itself.
2: If you're doing
1: a job that you love, if you're not stuck in something where you get up and say, I've got to go do this today. You know, I can't wait to get out of your attitude. You know, maybe, you know, if you're not enjoying it, maybe there's, you know, a certain part of success that you don't have. Success to me is being comfortable and content with where you're at, at any point in your life. That's
0: beautiful. Not everybody could be Seinfeld making a million dollars an episode. I mean, that's just, you know, a rarity when you're, you know, in big productions like that and Big Bang Theory. But yeah, that's that's beautiful. Uh, what is next for you?
1: You know, uh, well, a lot of retirement right now. <laughs> um, there is another movie. Um, I'm technically under one of these nondisclosure agreements. Yeah, NDAs. What I think I'm at liberty at this point because it's already been advertised. It's got a re- it's got a new release date now that you know because of the pandemic stuff going on. Uh, It's due out in August. It's an animated live-action crossover based on um, SpongeBob. Oh, cool. Wow. And and, uh, so I'll be in theaters in that in August. Other than that, there's really not much else happening right now. Um, I'm kind of enjoying a Mm -hmm. semi-retirement. I've had a few people talk to me about their projects that they'd like me to be a part of. Um, but that's really the most part right now. It's just discussions. Um, there's not a whole lot going on right now. I'm not ruling out doing more uh, special makeup characters. I'm not ruling out being in, you know, TV and film projects here in the future. But for right now, the way life is right now, my success and my contentment of just, like I said, the silver lining of having this time. I can do certain things. I can relax. Um, I can get outside in my property and enjoy the sunshine, take a dip in my pool when it's hot, things like that. And when the conventions start up again, um, I look forward, really look forward to getting back out, to saying hi to the fans and and meeting them and learning about them. So many times people, I'm all, sometimes I get into these cliches, but so many times people tend to put, somebody like me up on this pedestal like I'm a celebrity like I'm better than them or mm-hmm. there's somebody I look up to and everything and I have to remind them I said look the only difference between me and you is that my office comes into your living room or into your local movie theater and that's, that's it. the only difference you get to see what I do every day one of these days just like the TV show The Office I'm just going to bring a camera with me and I'm just going to I'm just going to record what you do in your everyday life they call that a reality show for what I call it, it's a sitcom you and, have your drama and your and your funny moments in life just like everybody else it just doesn't get recorded so I'll come and do that and we'll sit back and I'll bring you into my home and I'll think wow that you look really good that's fun I wish I had that because <laughs> you do things that I don't do
0: and it's it's um you know I, I'm, I'm like on the fence of that like when I see celebrities I mean I I I don't fan out. I mean, I, I've 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 met quite a few in my lifetime, but um, like uh, Terrence Howard, I passed by him. I knew who he was. I never called it out. You know, I said hi, how's it going, how you doing? And you know, I've worked with him a few times on Empire and, and um, John C. Riley. I my daughter. I I was almost gonna die. My daughter at the time she was four years old, and we were on the TSA check line. Uh, John C. Riley, who played in Step Brothers. Uh, was right behind me and I just wanted to turn around and, 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 and you know, say a stepbrother's phrase or something, but I held it because they're just people. He was just a regular guy. So you know had, Go ahead.
1: I almost got a chance to work with him years ago.
0: Which uh, which film?
1: Very early movie. Boogie Nights.
0: Boogie oh Boogie Nights. I almost spit my beer. Oh, Boogie Nights?
1: yeah wow he was
0: in that and you almost got to work with him
1: I almost got into that film I came very close
0: oh that would have been a great experience for you That I mean, Jossie he's uh, I mean from one of what I, what I could been, gather
1: it would have been a very fun project to be on despite the subject matter it was just they had such a fun group Bill Macy's in there Burt Reynolds was in there mm-hmm. Mark Wahlberg I mean uh, what's the young lady Redhead I can't say her name right now she played one of the leading ladies in that in that movie, nice. Julianne Moore. Okay, and I mean, just when you think about the cast that they had for that back in the nineties, it's like, oh, that would have been a very, very unique and different, but yet fun experience.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that man, that's a that's a good tidbit to walk away with. This. Uh, so, do you have any <laughs> special uh, advice for aspiring actors?
1: Well, other than what I've already touched on. It's just, if you give up on a dream, you have no chance of success in anything, whether it's acting, any type of career that you choose. If you give up, you have, you've already quit. You've already failed. You've already lost it. But at the same time, acting, the entertainment industry, is a very mentally trying and tough industry industry to deal with on a day to day basis. It's got a lot of ups and downs. It's it's the fastest, steepest, jerkiest roller coaster of a experience you could ever you know go through. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to suggest this. Um, Winston Churchill, many, many years ago, many, many years ago, who coined the phrase never, never give up. I take one small variation to that and say it's okay to give up today. Take a break. Give yourself a day's vacation. Give your brain a rest. It's okay to still think every once in a while, hear about it today, but give yourself a a generally good rest, good night's sleep, eat right, relax, give yourself a chance to refocus, and then come back again tomorrow and hit it again. But if you actually say, I give up, and you walk away and say, I don't want to do this because of frustration or whatever else may be going through your life at that time, then you've lost. I say, don't be a loser. Mm-hmm. It's okay to take a break for a day. We all take vacations. Why? We need that break away from something so we can come back and focus on it again. And we can, and we can move ahead and, and be rejuvenated when you work on a set or you're auditioning you're learning you're going to school you're learning how to act that's a lot of time a lot of effort a lot of energy and if you do that every single day even 5-6 days a week it's going to take its toll on you you'll feel like you're not doing anything else break it up this is why I You know, red carpet events, for example, have become a diamond dozen in some cases. Red carpets used to be reserved for the Oscars and the Emmys and movie premieres. Now, smaller companies are coming up with this pre Oscar parties to come walk the red carpet, and they have photographers out there and things like that, and they can make you feel like a celebrity. Well, if you can get into, you know, dress up, if you're in the industry, you can get into one of those parties. Okay. You're not at the Oscars. You're not at the Emmys. But you can start to feel. You can get the energy of being around people that want to do what you want to do. You know, get your picture taken. You know, who knows? You create opportunities for yourself. Mm. And that's one of the things, creating your own opportunities. Wow. It's It's always been a phrase, you know... It's always about who you know. I say it's not who you know, but it's who knows you. I know a lot of people. I know Steven Spielberg. He doesn't know me. He doesn't have my phone number. He can't call me up and say, hey, I've got this part for you. But if you get out into the industry, you get out to these networking events, you don't know who you might meet and who you can give your phone number to. You don't just shove it in their face. But you say, hey, you know, if anything comes along, I would love to help you with it. You know, if there's anything I can do, if I can be your assistant, if I can, you know, if there's a crew job available, I would just love to be a part of your production. You know, and you're sincere about it. You've got to let people know you're available. And just an agent alone is only one person or maybe two or three people in an office. They get 10% or 15%, why? Because that's all the work they're doing for you. You're doing the rest of it, not only on set, but you have to market yourself. You have to let people know about you and what your skills and your talents are. And make sure those skills and talents include people skills, getting along, being kind, being generous, so that they know you're there for them. It's not about me, it's about what I can do for you. Wow that is so i would not have gotten my job on argo if i had not if the makeup artist did not know me and how to get in touch with me the director that i had known for years if he did not have my phone number i met him just in a casting office one time and i did everything i could to let him know that i was there for him and over the next decade or so two decades i would get calls from him directly or his assistant director if he did not know me and know how to get in touch with me, I would not have had a chance at those jobs. If I may, from my personal side of things, and mm-hmm. trying to do better, I love to go to conventions. I love meeting the fans, like I said. Nowadays, I'm only doing when it's happening, because obviously we're not doing any right now. But on average, over the last, say, six to ten years, I've only been doing an average of maybe six a year, maybe seven, tops. I've had years I've only done three or four. Why? For whatever has happened. The convention industry has changed, and as not as many of them know about me. I have not been able to get these individual conventions to learn about me and why I am a draw, and why people will want to come out and meet me, even though I'm not one of the main characters. You know, I'm not one of the seven main cast members or whatever of these shows that they're focusing on for their conventions or whatever. I wish I could get more of these convention organizers to know me and why I'm of value to them to be at their event. And I will say this, I've never been that much about money. Even, you know, if I was about money, I wouldn't have settled for what I do in the industry, in the background, in bit parts and everything, making far far less than people who have dialogue and have their names at the top of the shows Mm -hmm. because not everybody can do that. I just want to be a part of the production. I want to be a part of what is going to help that show become a success so that everybody can still keep working and doing what they love. So I wish I could get more people that run conventions to invite me to their events and I guarantee them that I am far less of an expense to them than some of the other actors and celebrities that they've had into their events time and time again I would be a new fresh face to a lot of these events Um, I have fans, people would love to come out and see me for example, I have not been to an event in New York in over 10, 15 years yet I have many fans on Facebook from the New York area that keep wondering when I'm going to come to their area
0: in a how 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 can people request to have you at their convention
1: well it, the actual the simplest way my website just like I like you call I am the I originally coined the phrase alien actor when I was on Babylon 5 and I started thinking about doing conventions I started calling myself the alien actor now I've kind of become known as that um, even though I have a very what, even though he and I have only spoken once, we've never been on the same set. I have a huge amount of respect for Doug Jones. Mm. Um, he, he's an excellent actor, he's been around as long as I have. He's done a lot of great characters. He's known now far more than I am because he's been in characters, his name's at the top of the shows. You know, he's currently in Star Trek Discovery. Um, But at the same time, no, he hasn't done nearly as many different special effect characters as I have. Mm -hmm. I'm not taking anything away from him. I think he is fantastic. I think he's a bigger star by all means than I am. Um, But because of that, these people know about him. The best way to learn about me, alienactor.com. You can Google my name, Bill Blair, and put the word actor or Hollywood after it. If you don't put that, you're going to get this police chief stuff going on up in Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, But you put Bill Blair and the word actor, and the first page of the Google results, 90% of it will be me. I am not hard to find. I've, I've done nothing illegal. Nobody's chasing me. I'm not hidden out there. You can... it's so easy to locate me. You just have to know about me.
0: Incredibly accessible for, for somebody that has done as much as you have. I mean, it's as easy as adding you and just inboxing you. You're, you're, you're just a regular person. You're, you respond right back.
1: And one of the, one of the tabs on my homepage of alien actor is how to get in contact with me. Not only just to send me a message, but also how to book me for your event.
0: Mm. well i i'm definitely going to be uh rooting for you and and hoping to 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 see you around in these conventions and if you're ever in chicago i'm definitely going to be there no doubt um
1: Uh, last time i was in chicago at an event was a hollywood collector show back i think it was in 2001 um i have not been uh i think uh, I, closest I got to uh, the Chicago area since then was uh, a small event in Valparaiso, Indiana. And then I was at one in Wisconsin, in uh, Janesville, Wisconsin. Uh, I've been to Minneapolis, St. Paul area, Bloomington, Minnesota. But no, I have not, I have not yet been back to Chicago. I've not been to any of the events there.
0: Well, so, I I hope that changes soon.
1: I, I'm I'm welcome. I'd love. I lived in Chicago for two years. I enjoy coming back there.
0: Well, don't don't come back here in the winter. It's just it's horrible. It's 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 a That's different land. <laughs> it's a different <laughs> I, land. I
1: could, only, I could only handle two years in Chicago, and I had to leave. <laughs> I could not handle the winters. One of the first one of my first winters there, I had briefcase in one hand and my modeling portfolio in another. I stepped off the curb at Ohio and Rush I think it was and I started across the street I got about six steps up a gust of wind I mean like you wouldn't believe it well it happens there gust of wind came up and my briefcase and my portfolio acted like wings caught the wind and I literally slid backwards to the curb where I just came from
0: <laughs> it does that it would have to been you. a great
1: special effect in the movie <laughs> if they had been on film but no it was just real life happenings And I thought, this is ridiculous. (laughs) I grew up in northeast Ohio, and even though we had the massive amounts of snow, I never had this happen to
0: me. So the two years you were here, did you experience anything below, like negative 20 degrees? Because that's like a Uh... different...
1: Like, you know, I think I think the coldest in those two winters that I was there, I think the coldest it got was like minus eleven or twelve.
0: Oh, that's 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 a, that's a pretty good winter day. That's 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 a good day to do errands outside. But oh, it yeah. is.
2: I and mean, that,
1: and I did a lot outside. That was early on. I mean, I was wearing out the shoe leather, knocking on doors. Um, it was in Chicago where I knocked. I just happened to knock on a door. I was knocking on every door that had the word production on it anything that I thought was involved with entertainment had my headshots, my resume had everything in hand, just wanted to introduce myself. Uh, those kinds of days are long gone. Um, you know, the old door to door salesman kind of attitude, Mm -hmm. uh, because of the internet and everything else going on. But back then I could do that. And I wore out many pairs of shoes walking the streets of Chicago through all the warehouses knocking on doors and that's where I went I created one of my first lucky breaks I knocked on the door of Joel Settlemyer Joel Settlemyer Productions and he was the gentleman that was doing all those writer commercials and where's the beef commercials with Clara Peller and I got into a commercial with him for the New York 9X Business to Business Yellow Pages and that's how I became eligible to join the Screen Actors Guild in my very first year of work wow actually my very and my it literally was my very first year of doing anything out there
0: so the internet came out in the 90s how how much more different did it make uh networking and, and casting because you were saying you were going door to door that sounds so ex- like mm-hmm. it's just e- right now you could just easily go on google and, and submit to all these productions so how much more different was it back then was it uh like
1: harder well you just think about the door-to-door salesman. If you if you get somebody to answer the door, you've already got a face-to-face contact. Mm. They see your eyes, they hear your voice. Now, today, the internet, online casting, everything is rely relies on that image that comes across that computer. The casting director, they're not, and even when before that, casting directors were getting agency packets sent by courier every morning or every evening that they'd have to scour through and they might get hundreds now they're getting thousands of people submitting not only from agencies but me as an individual if i belong to a certain online program i can self-submit myself even without an agent to a casting so the odds on certain things in certain ways have dropped um where you were up against hundreds. Now you're up against thousands of people submitting on the other hand. And this is all about how statistics work. When I was first doing this, there were three turning into four major networks, you know, cable was in its early infancies, you know, uh, super stations like TBS and, uh, the station, there was a station out of Dallas, Fort Worth that were, um, nationwide stations. Um, HBO and uh, MTV were just coming into existence. Now, you know, you had some of your UHF channels. We don't even, nobody knows what UHF is anymore. Um, And so think about this too. We had, on a given week you might have, what, seven nights four hours at one time, three hours later on, of prime time programming. So you had three, six, nine, 12, times seven. You might have 100 to 150 shows to choose from for casting people to be in. Now come the 80s and the 90s. All of a sudden we had, and even more recently than that, we've had an explosion with cable, streaming, uh, online networks television and everything else. No longer do you have just the the one, two, or three screen movie houses. You've got six or 16 screens in a movie house. There are that many more projects out there to do. So there are many more opportunities for actors to get into the industry in one way or another. But you have that many more people trying. Mm -hmm. So what happens on the other hand too, is all of this used to be supported by advertisers. Now it's being supported by advertisers, cable feeds, and everything else. But there are so many networks and so many channels that there's only so much money to go around. So what happens? You find more and more people wanting to get into the business and acting that are being asked to work for free so I can do what I want to do in my dream is make a movie. Mm. So there are a lot of different perspectives to this industry of how it works, the possibilities, the availability of jobs for actors. There are so many more jobs available for actors these days. But it's not going to pay the same as it did in the same perspective as it did 20 or 30 years ago.
0: Not when you mass produce. I mean, like, like Netflix and, and uh, Amazon, they pump out content every single day. I mean, you're not making big bank if anything you're making the, the bare minimum or, or you know the, the SAG minimum of like 36,000 or whatever it is but um, I, I I mean it, right now like what, when you were saying earlier about people getting submissions right now like the databases you can literally put Asian 5.9 and you'll get every single applicant that's an Asian at 5.9 and you could like drill down there yeah submissions are like you bigger like you have a bigger amount but you know, the, you, the amount of time it would take for you to find what you want, I, I believe, would be less rather than shuffling through thousands of, of submissions on your desk.
1: Well, here's something else, too. And you have to think about, I'm going to use the term common man, common woman in terms of this. Who can now submit themselves? They're going to see what we call the breakdown. They're going to see the description of the character. And it's going to say... We're looking for female, blonde hair, 5'7, you know, blue eyes, you know, whatever, like that, that knows how to play a piano. You would think that would be nice and specific. Casting directors are going to get submissions from both male and female that are not even 5'7, that are not even blonde hair, that have no idea how to sit down at a piano
0: just because they want that opportunity and they, have,
1: and they have to wade through all of those too. Now, what about the right person? That I know casting directors say we look at every submission. But when you think about how many how many seconds they can afford to look at each submission and get through thousands because they're under the gun to get this thing cast. What if I was the right person for that description? but because I didn't see the casting notice or for whatever reason, my submission didn't get in until they'd already looked at 2,000 and they got tired. They never see me. Mm. There are so many variables and it's it's impossible to break it down, to outline it, to say why certain people get seen and others don't. Yeah, you're going to get seen if you're with a major agency, you know, ICM, CAA, the actors agency. I mean, there's the top, always there's the top 20 or 25 agencies in Los Angeles and New York. You know that those people are going to be seen constantly. I never actually, here's another interesting little bit of trivia. I have never had a successful, a successful relationship with a talent agency. Really? Everything that, again, over 95% of everything that you know about me that you've seen on screen or read on the internet, I have created as a freelance.
0: You created your own opportunity. i have
1: people to know me. Mm. I've so- had, you know, I, I had half a dozen agents over the years in L.A., The first agent I had wrote bad checks to me, twice. Other agents, unfortunately, for whatever reason, passed away, and another agency I'd sign up with was just not successful. I was with a I thought was going to be a successful agency relationship, but I was I was only getting auditions through that agency if I was lucky once a month. This is also a business of numbers if you don't get the auditions, if you don't get the opportunities, you're not going to get the job. That's why I also come back to that, it's who knows you. The more you can cut out that middle uh, section of the casting process, the more chances you have of getting parts. Mm. I feel like... I'd rather get to the point where I don't have to be seen I'm already known and that's what's happening to me now the few offers that I've had the people that I'm talking with about their projects when Mm. the times come is because they know me now and they said I want you if you're available would you consider doing this will you look at my script
0: I feel like such a sponge right now with you um this is the longest it's I've ever right. sat down with anybody. Two hours, and I'm just like in awe. You are filled with so much experience, wisdom, and you have so much to give. It, it's you know. I'm
1: happy to share it. It, it does me no good keeping it inside. The knowledge that I have is of no good, of no value, unless I can share it with others.
0: And that's beautiful. Um, for, for all the listeners out there, if you guys want to get in contact with Bill, his uh, website is AlienActor.com. He's also searchable on, on Facebook. He has his uh, fan page on Facebook as well as his personal. Um, easily accessible. He's, he's very approachable. Uh, the conversations that we had online, it, you know, it, I, I wouldn't have expected that from from somebody that's done so much uh bill you you're a teacher you're what you've done and what you've you've accomplished is amazing and i could only aspire to 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 be just as great uh you thank you for for everything you've done and I really can't wait to, to, to see your next, your, your next work, to see you in conventions. Hopefully once this whole COVID thing goes away, um, you make your rounds again.
1: Well, let, me, let me treat you to one other aspect before we uh, part ways here. Okay. As far as the conventions go, I actually have a makeup artist that I work with for conventions. And those conventions that would like something different. Now, we've been doing this for over 20 years at the Star Trek Las Vegas convention, they started doing this the last few years because they found out that actually people enjoy this and watching actors get turned into the iconic characters that they have watched on television live before their eyes. I have a makeup artist that I work with that we can be booked together and we will put on a live Hollywood type demonstration and the fans and the convention people of all aspects of the convention can come in and watch and see me turned into one of the many characters or something new from TV, film, as well as comics. Um, we have done um, many, uh, several characters from the Marvel Universe. We've done characters from Babylon 5, from Star Trek. Um, we have made up characters to show how, you know, just different pieces can turn you into something really crazy and interesting-looking. It doesn't necessarily have to be a major race. We had a lot of characters on Star Trek that were called Westmore aliens, and they only appeared in one episode uh, because you just can't have a space station full of Klingons, Cardassians, and Jemadar, for example. Mm. You have to have... If it's like an airport, you've gotta have people look like they're coming from all walks of life, all different places of the universe passing through there. So we offer that to the conventions as well, um, as an attraction that uh, people will want to come and see and see how this is done. And they'll take it home for their cosplaying and, and, and their characters that they like to put together and, and know how to do it uh, even better. And in a lot of cases, a lot easier. I, I met a young man once, he wondered, you know, what we used to take the prosthetics off with, and I asked him, "What are you putting them on with?" And he told me, "Super glue." <laughs> I may, immediately begged him to stop doing that.
2: It uh, sounds so dangerous. More about
1: it. Yes, but anyways, I wanted to say thank you to you. I've enjoyed this time. It's been a pleasure being on here with you and talking with you and and sharing my stories. And if you ever want to do this again, you know. Uh, My well is not dry. There's still plenty more that can be talked about and and, and things that we can share uh, with your listening audience. And I want to thank everybody that did listen in today. And please, don't be shy about getting in touch with me. You are the people that have allowed me to do what I enjoy doing and entertaining and performing. Because without you watching, I'd probably be working in a factory somewhere
0: you're that's that's awesome the the makeup application um little session that you would do at a convention that sounds something that i'd be so totally interested in watching uh but i am definitely looking forward to the next time we speak i had a great time and i appreciate the time you took to talk with me bill If you enjoyed this week's episode, please make sure you hit that subscribe button to stay centered on all Indie Center podcast episodes. If you are an independent creator and have a story to share and want to have a sit down, please email me at indiecenterpodcast at gmail.com. That's indiecenterpodcast at gmail.com. If you have sponsorship inquiries, I would love to help local businesses. Please email me at indiecenterpodcast at gmail.com. Until next
2: Monday, guys. Peace.